0: for Chicago Jazz Magazine, and welcome to the October 2019 feature interview. I am so excited. Chico Freeman is here. He's in town. This is going to air after his Jazz Showcase hit, but he comes in town all the time. But you know, he's a product of Chicago, moved to New York. He has played everywhere in the world. We are going to try to cover as much as we can on this interview, but I'm so glad that we got to sit down with you while you're in town here in Chicago. So, Chico, thanks for being on the show, and thanks for being a feature interview for this Uh, month.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited about being here.
0: I'll tell you, you know, we've been talking off camera, and I wish we were running some of that, because, I mean, the stories we're talking about, just, it's incredible. So, without going completely down the bio chain and all that stuff of (laughs) Chico, because I could just continue to talk about it, but why don't we just kick it off first? All right, you're a product of Chicago, Von Freeman's son, obviously the Freeman family is just known for music and fascinating. fascinating. you yeah. actually were not gravitated you did not pick up the saxophone right away you wanted to be a vocalist i think at one point in high school that was your first instrument is that right
1: no actually in grammar school grammar school because okay. i was in the choir okay you know the boys choir mm-hmm you know when <laughs> <laughs>
0: But how? Did, I mean, how how did that happen? Like, I mean, you, you had to have the saxophone playing all around your your house as you were growing up. Well, right? when I yeah,
1: when I grew up, my my family, my my the Freeman brothers, my dad used to have rehearsals at the house. So, uh, my Uncle George on guitar, my Uncle yep. Bruce was the drummer, and from time to time, let's see, we had Andrew Hill on piano and Don Baltazar on piano, and uh, and uh, we had Malachi Favors on. My, I said we, but actually, my sure, father yeah. had Malachi Favors and. Uh, Leroy Vinegar on bass, and so th- that, that was the band. So we would have these rehearsals, and in the summertime, it was particularly fun because on our block, we had like 23, 25 kids. Oh, and my mom back. was like <laughs> totally, you know, the kids loved my mom. They called her Aunt Ruby. So when my dad would, uh, of course, back then there was no air conditioning, mm-hmm. so she would open up all the windows, <clears throat> and uh, all the kids would come down, they would sit on the porch, and they would be rehearsing. and They'd be all out there listening to the music, wow. and my mom would make lemonade for everybody.
0: <laughs> I mean, but uh, with your dad, I mean, they were playing. Your dad was playing every night of the week, basically, right at that point. Well, he, was I mean, playing, he was playing. He was
1: playing a, playing a lot. I mean. I, I mean, I'm a kid. I I don't know exactly, right? But he seemed to be gone a lot, so <laughs> yeah, I, I think probably. That's but
0: he true. was also, I mean, he was also playing with like some of the heavy hitters of the jazz. I mean, jazz legends, right? I well, mean, in Chicago, yeah. I mean, you know,
1: Johnny Griffin and uh, Gene Ammons and Nat King Cole and
0: were they all over at your house? At one well, point, or I, at or? one
1: point, I would see them from time to time, here and yeah. there. You know, later on, when I uh, after I got out of college you know, I used to I used to bartend for my dad, so. Uh, at the places, the jam, I mean, the clubs were like the Enterprise, Betty, Betty Lou's and places like that. And I would be down there and I got to meet people like Don Bias, even the older greats, you know. Uh, Gene, that's where I met Gene Ammons and Sonny Stitt and Dexter Gordon and uh, Norman Connors. You know, they would come down and they would play. Uh, mm-hmm. And to come and sit in and play with uh, After they play the showcase, they come out and hang out with, with my dad. And, ah. and, uh, for Jordan, you know, just a bunch, a bunch of the great players at so, the time.
0: So, how is it like? When did you first like get influenced by jazz? Because I, kn- I know that you know you're you're in the in the choir, and there's jazz all around you, but it doesn't seem like you were like connected to it at that point. Well, was no there a moment when you like just well, like. Of course, every kid, you know, yeah, uh, that's true, hooks
1: up with with their peers. You know, so when I was in grammar school, I was hanging out well, with my um, the Drifters were like the big big hit, you know, and so. Uh, I remember Joseph Cash, the name is, still sticks with me, he started a singing group in grammar school. And I joined that sing. I was part of that singing group and we would sing. So I'd like to do that because I was in the choir. But when I was five years old, I started playing piano. So I took piano lessons at, from five. And then later I joined the band, but I was playing trumpet. And that's because my brother and I went, like kids, we went down to the basement. My, pop, my father was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. and we found a bunch of his old Navy stuff. He was in the Navy with Clark Terry and, and a bunch of people, you know, the uh, Navy Hellcats, I think was the name of that. Okay. It was a very famous Navy band. You know. Anyway, we went down and we went rummaging through his stuff and I found the tr- we found trumpet and an alto saxophone. And just as luck would have it, I picked up the trumpet and my brother picked up the alto saxophone. So we started playing down there. My father heard all this noise. He didn't know what, because we weren't supposed to be down there anyway. We weren't supposed to be in it. He Digging came around the stuff. He, he loved to tell that story too. He called, I heard all this bleating and blatting, he would say. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't play. <laughs> anyway, that's how I ended up playing trumpet. So I uh, went to school and joined the band and, and playing trumpet. My brother also, he, he joined the band. He started playing saxophone, alto saxophone. So that's, that was my introduction to the instrument. And then one day, I was, my father had records that he, they were precious like gold. He we didn't want us to touch them because you know, we'd scratch him. Sure, that. of course. One day he was out and I woke up in the middle of the night just, and I went downstairs and and didn't, (laughs) with no regard to his wishes (laughs) or requests. (laughs) I pulled out this album and put it on. And I sat there and that was the first record that just, and that was Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Wow. And that was the first jazz record I ever listened to. And that's when it happened, that changed my life. And uh, from that point on, I could only hear Miles Davis in my head as far as the trumpet, but that's the very reason I switched to saxophone. Why is that? Because I didn't like any other trumpet players. <laughs> Nobody, I mean Clifford Brown, you know, all of them. I just, I could only hear Miles in my head. And, and I knew I wasn't gonna be successful copying Miles. You right. know, being a, a clone of Miles, so. Um.
0: But well, you weren't really thinking like being a professional musician then, right? I mean, you're—I mean, this is like high school, right? Grade school, high school that you're playing trumpet? Well, I, 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 not, not in a business
1: sense, not yeah. in a, uh, but I, 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 I kind of knew I wanted to pro- be a performer of some kind. I, there were three things I wanted to do. My uh, uncle, Brus, the drummer, was mm-hmm. a Tuskegee Ameri- uh, Tuskegee uh, Airman. Airman sorry. Yeah. yeah, he was a Tuskegee Airman. And so he, he f- flew and uh, he flew planes. He was in the Air Force. And um, so I wanted to fly planes. So that was one. The other thing, I was a basketball player and I wanted to play basketball too. And the other thing I knew I wanted to perform and I thought maybe singing, but then when I, you know, and then music, so I somehow knew I was gonna do one of those three. Mm-hmm. And uh, so some somewhere without me really thinking about it, yeah. you know, it, that was guiding me. But
0: see so you, you went to school though. So, when you went, you, you finished high school and then you ended up going to college. Yeah. But you didn't go to college for music,
1: did you? I went for mathematics. I got a four year scholarship to Northwestern <laughs> University. I, I was smart too. <laughs> you were smart. So <laughs> that's what they said. But yeah, so I got a four year scholarship to Northwestern University in mathematics. Wow. So.
0: I mean, it, was that uh, like with math? I mean, is that just something that drew you? You were drawn to math. I mean, it was like the science and math, <laughs> was just, or what was it? Well,
1: I, yeah, I'm, I guess so. I was, I was good at it, and um, I like science and math. Uh, but but the way that happened, I, I like a challenge, and I. Um, when I was in high school, I went to Parker High School, and and, and the school was overcrowded, so they they built this uh, what they called Yale Upper Grade Center. So they sent all the freshmen there. And it was kind of disappointing to me because I was excited about getting my high school experience. But mm-hmm. anyway, I went there, and the thing was, I had this math teacher, and uh, I was f- I was close to failing math. I was getting nothing but D's, and one day we were doing equations, and uh, she got sick, and we had a substitute teacher. I'll never forget his name, Mr. Gates. These are a few people that stand out, yeah. right? And He explained these equations on the board in a way that I could understand. Her, she was doing it, but I just didn't grab her system, her way. But his, I got it. Then, uh, wow, a light went on. Then he left, she came back when she got better, and she gave us a test to find out how well we we were doing. I got every question correct, but she failed me with a big red F. And I went to her and said, why? And it was because I didn't do it her way. (laughs) They were correct, but you didn't do it the way she went. No, I did it the way I learned from Right. Because I totally understood it.
0: Sure.
1: And I argued with her, but she wouldn't change it. And uh, I was pretty pissed. And that thing that came up in me that, that, that thing, Michael Jordan, I feel like really Michael felt when he got cut from the basketball team. Yep. Felt exactly like that. So she passed me at the end of the year with a D. But then they gave us a test to find out, you know, how smart we were. And I scored high on this test along with some other guys. And they put us in a special class for the next year where most people uh, would... Uh, have three majors, you know, mm-hmm. English, history, and something, uh, maybe a language possibly. <clears throat> Honor students took four majors. This group I was in, we had six. Six majors? Six majors. Huh. And one of the time, and, and I went, and the first thing I had was, and the, 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 the algebra, it was algebra, this class that my teacher, okay. n- yeah. that I nearly failed. Then, but now I'm studying matrix algebra, and I'm going to Wilson Junior College, for calculus, because I had three, <laughs> three of the three of those six majors were math, oh. and I had this teacher, and he was a brilliant little guy, you know, and um, I don't know, I understood. So, at the end of the second, my second years, I went back to my teacher in the other place, opened up my course book, and like you, you ever play bidwist? Yeah. Where like bam, <laughs> <laughs> and I. I am, <laughs> you know, then Michael Jordan kind of thing. So, and she she disappointed me because she looked at it. She said, "Oh, congratulations!" Oh, yeah, of course, I couldn't yeah, stay I angry. at it. So that was it. <laughs> anyway, uh, at the end, I ended up getting a scholarship. Yeah. No uh, lesson because of that.
0: So you you weren't really playing that much then, right? I, I was mean, playing. You know, I, you, played, you I played trumpet, trumpet in the it, band. Right? Yeah, I was playing yeah. trumpet. Okay. Yeah.
1: And then I kind of stopped for a while uh, while I was there because I six majors and trying to play basketball yeah. and oh, <laughs> you know, all of that kind of stuff, yeah.
0: What drew you back? What drew you back? back to the music? Yeah, because you must've, you're in college at that point, right? I mean. Yeah. Well, when I got to college,
1: um, when I was at my first year at Northwestern, I'm taking all these math courses and, uh, and the first year, I thought, okay, I felt like getting into music, doing something, so I decided to see if I could join the band just, uh,
0: like the marching band? Yeah, because they, they,
1: you, it, it counted as an athletic thing because uh, it was the marching band. Okay. So it counted as an athletic uh, thing. and So I joined the marching band. And I got to travel too, to the, you know. Oh, you got to Michigan go yeah, to the big game 10 yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, so that was cool. So I did that, and so I was still playing the trumpet then. But then, uh, and then the, my sec uh, my second year and third year, uh, you get to a point in mathematics, at least the way they did, uh, the way they did it then, where it splits off in two directions, uh, practical and uh, kind of infinite, the infinity, infinity mm-hmm. series and um, abstract. Okay. And what I learned was that mathematics was so far ahead of science. So for example, all the things that we know now at, uh, you know, with the s- space launching and all these things, mathematical things that they didn't know then, math knew. Then science finds usages oh. for it. They find how to practice, you know, make it practical, and I that that excited me. So I decided to go off in the abstract direction. It's one of the reasons I was open to uh, experimental music, mm-hmm. avant-garde music, but that direction. And at that time, I started being recruited. I was recruited by IBM and uh, the space, like T- Dan- Kennedy, NASA. Yeah, NASA. Yeah. yeah, I was recruited by them, IBM and another data data. Control, I think it was, okay. they had a company back then. And I was seriously thinking about doing that. The other, but what the other option I saw as a mathematician was to go, to become a professor, you know, or or do that stuff. But I don't know, I just had this thing about moving around. I, I, I so I, I ended up, and music, in the, at that time, I was starting to go down and see my father at the jam sessions. The Enterprise, but Betty Lou's, those clubs, and, and seeing these people, Yeah. like I just mentioned to you before. Uh, did I mention that on camera or not? You, yeah, you did, did okay. yeah. Dexter Gordon, yeah, all those yeah, guys. All those. I those. started, Cogler, and yeah. that's, that's when I, sta- I slowly started to turn. So then I, sta- I decided that uh, I wanted to change majors and switch to the music school. But actually, actually not, not then, I was taking, I decided to take trumpet lessons and I had a teacher. No, no, I decided to switch to the music school in trumpet I, at that time. And so I was taking trumpet lessons and I was still had Miles in my head. Mm-hmm. And I went to my classical uh, teacher, and I was so excited, I brought that album kind of blue. And I, I said, listen, check this guy out, right? And my teacher, and I liked the guy, he was yeah. a, a good guy, you know? When he came back, he had not a thing positive to say about Miles.
0: <laughs> he's a classical trumpet player, right? He's yeah, listening he to was Miles, like, Yeah, he was like,
1: he plays out of tune, and he's just this, like that, and that. I said, that's blue notes, man, that's not out of tune. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I just didn't get it. And that, at that point, I thought, oh, I, I can't stay in this, you know? Yeah. And, but I decided to go into music education, you know, to... to, to
0: yeah, so you had something to fall back on, right? Yeah, see, I
1: didn't, never thought oh, like no? that. Oh, no? No, I, I, I subscribed to that Eddie Murphy comment. They asked Eddie Murphy, did he ever uh, think he needed something to fall back? He said, if he had thought that way, he'd set himself up for failure from the beginning. So I never thought that way. Yeah but no i just thought educate I, I wanted to learn as much as i could about other instruments as well so i thought uh, it would be good so in doing that i i had to take string cl- you know string instruments mm-hmm. and you know so i and i also had to take woodwind and when i got there all the clarinets were going so the only thing that was left was alto saxophone which reminded me of my brother you know from <laughs> so yeah. i took the alto saxophone and i played for you know a a a, a quarter cuz you know northwestern's on the quarter systems right and uh during spring break which was in march if i remember correctly uh everybody was leaving to go and there was a tenor saxophone in the room and i asked my teacher if i could take the tenor saxophone home and i took the tenor saxophone home for two weeks practiced 10 hours every day (laughs) for two weeks i didn't go to what was the, what's the place everybody goes on spring break? Cancun? Yeah, no, Florida, the, you know. Oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah I know, know what you're the, talking about, crazy. yeah. Everybody is. I've never man. been there. <laughs> I went to inside two Daytona weeks. Beach. Yeah, Daytona. So I come back, you know, after spring break, and I go to the band director, and I say, hey, I said, you know what, I'd like to join the band. And he looked at me crazy, he says, you're already in the band, what are you talking about? I right. said, yeah, I'm on trumpet, I wanna try it on saxophone. And there was this guy, he was from Texas, Southern guy. Let's say that uh, I didn't think he was a big fan of mine. he didn't really know me that well, but that it was more from mm. where he came yeah, from. Right. Yeah, right, right. You understand <laughs> he's a little biased. Mean. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, uh, you, you know, this is Northwestern. This is not, uh, you know, this is the, the, the Harvard of the Midwest. This is the, you know, what's the famous school in, the, um, in New York, you know, Ju- Ju- Juilliard, oh, yeah, you yeah. Know? he's like that.
0: I, and I listened to that, and
1: I said, well, I said, well, look, because I had to audition. I said, okay, well, I said, well, you have the power to say no. I said, but you don't have the power not to let me try. So I auditioned and made it. <laughs> had to, you know. So now I'm in the band on saxophone, and I'm studying with Fred Hemke, who I, I liked him anyway, because I was playing his reeds on soprano. Oh, yeah. Hemke reeds, yeah. Yeah, that's so i mean. It. So now I'm playing in the, um, Saxophone quartet, classical music, and I've got this classical mouth. Everything cool, and Fred is—he's cool with me. Mean, it's all good. Then one day I go down to play with my dad, at Betty Lou's—I remember—and Clifford Jordan was there, and I felt like okay, I kind of can play now. I, I had he I heard remember.
0: you play yet? I mean, had he mm-hmm. heard yeah,
1: you? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, my dad, I mean, like yeah. like sax, like yeah. At him? home, yeah. I yeah. mean, at home, I would go there, and he, he he would never let me go. But I had, but I. I yeah, he, he had heard me. There. Okay. But not out, only practicing. Yeah. So, now this is, my father's Von Freeman. So you know, this is serious, right? Sure, yeah. And and everybody's coming down and can play. I mean, Clifford Jordan, all these great musicians, and I'm thinking I'm ready to do this. And so I said, okay. And he, my dad's cool, his chest is out like this, and you know, Clifford said, okay, let's see what Von's son sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I got up on the stage, and I start to play, and my sound it will sound like tearing paper. So, you know,
0: just... Compared oh. to those guys, man, it's like a whole other uh, ballgame, right? Mike. <laughs> Painful. <laughs> <laughs> Not only to
1: me, but I look at my father, and he's, his chest was... <sighs> <laughs> Clifford was like... <laughs> 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 so. At the end of the night uh, I um, <laughs> was going to go back to school. <laughs> my father said, come with me, He'd come home with me. And so I went home and he went upstairs, he had a, opened up a drawer and had a cigar box full of mouthpieces and remember, when he pulled out this mouthpiece. He said, try this. I put it on, all of a sudden my sound oh,
0: boo. Really? Like, wow. Yeah.
1: And he said, you take this," he said. "I was making this for me," he said. "But you needed more than I do."
0: <laughs> so it was, a, it was really the notes were there pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It was the sound, well, but, right? the, but the well, sound—the yeah. the notes mean nothing without sound. You know that. So, you know that it's interesting you brought that up too because I mean, it, you know, kind of not, now you're playing sax and all that at that point. But I want to kind of vamp a little bit because you know Chicago's known for that big tenor sound, man. Absolutely. You know. Uh, Jug, your dad, Johnny Griffin. Johnny Griffin. I mean, you know, you can go down the list, right? I mean, so it's interesting to me that you brought that up with the sound thing, because I mean, that that's like the signature Chicago sound. You have that sound that you've even developed even more. Was that that was that even in your mind until that happened to you? And then what happened once you heard that? You were like, whoa! How could you go back to Northwestern with that sound now? Well, this is kind this.
1: Interesting you mentioned this, that you this, so. <laughs> Of course, after he gives me the mouthpiece, he says to me before I leave, he says, you can play a thousand notes, but if you don't have a sound, no one will hear you. Hmm. He said, or you can play one note, but if you have a sound, everyone will hear you. And that was the advice he gave me walking out the door. So I go up to Northwestern and I'm like thrilled, man. So I come back the next day for a saxophone quartet rehearsal with Fred. We start out, and I'm, <laughs> 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 boom, big ass sound, and just, <laughs> <laughs> and Fred is going, oh my God, what happened? What did Chico? What? And he's like, oh, stop, stop. He stops the band. I said, yeah. He said, what? I said, I got a new mouthpiece. Isn't it great? He said, no. <laughs> and not for that oh he was he was out yeah and there's a a very um, ironic thing that happens to this he says no this is classical music we want everyone to sound the same (laughs) that's (laughs) true though it's absolutely true so that was my first lesson you know so yeah I went back to my old Selmer C Star, you know, yeah. and and played the rest. But then I'd go on the weekends. I'd go and switch up mouthpieces and do that.
0: How hard? But, how hard was it to? Because I'm curious, because I want I want to talk about that a little bit. How hard was it to switch back and forth? And then how long do you think it took for you to develop? Because I was like asking people this that, that are like as accomplished as you and have recorded as much and played with so many people. How how long was it before all of a sudden you decided, this is the sound I'm happy with. This is me. This isn't me copying other people. This is like, it. Well, the funny thing is, I didn't have a saxophone at that time. I had still was playing that. Uh, You're borrowing the, 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 one the one from. And the it was a Bundy, that, you know, the oh, old model. Uh, yeah, summer, yeah. My huh? brother had a Bundy. Yeah. I, think I sold it for
1: twenty bucks. <laughs> I didn't to have it. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> then one day I went to um, a, a repair guy with the with the Bundy, you know, needed a little repair. I forget who the guy. I wish I could remember him because he actually changed. what's well, a pivotal point. In, in my development, I went there, and um, gave him the saxophone, and he said, you know, you need a, a, a professional. I said, I can't afford, you know, I don't have money for that. And he said, well, look, you should visit pawn shops, he told me. And he said, if you find a super action 80, not, a, I'm sorry, a balanced action, a balanced action, he said, this saxophone is, is good. He said, even if it's in bad shape, he says, Don't worry about it. You pick it up and you bring it to me and I can fix it up. Yeah. So so as luck would have it, not not soon after, some days after that, I went, I I started visiting pawn shops and I found this pawn shop and I found the saxophone and it was only a hundred bucks. So I took it, but it was pretty, in pretty bad shape. Yeah. And I took it to him and he fixed it up and that's the saxophone with my father's mouthpiece that I played on all my records my no first kidding. records and with all with Elvin Jones and Sun Ra and That's McCoy. sax? Yeah. It's a, that's the saxophone. I mean until wow. Yeah.
0: So so let, let's fast forward okay. a little because <laughs> I right. know I you and I could talk forever but I I that's the perfect launching point because let's talk about you're in Chicago you're you're starting to play you're doing all this stuff but then you ended up you how did you end up in New York? Because it's well, I started getting good.
1: <laughs> I was practicing a lot and getting good, and I started playing and experiencing. You know, I was playing in R and B bands and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: because you were playing all different genres here, right? I mean, I just am a musician here.
1: I'm just playing where I can get to, you know, get. And then did you, I, you do something with Earthwind and Fire? Or I did. I, like I played with Earth, Wind and Fire when Maurice was here. I was yeah. in that band for a while, and I met some people there. And then at that time, the Regal Theater was happening. And the Regal Theater had, uh, well, during my time, you know, they, they would bring um, Motown review and Dionne Warwick and you know, uh, Temptations, Isaac, right, B- yeah. all of these people, Stevie Wonder, little, little Stevie Wonder, and and then also there was a another place that they played, well, Lou Rawls, you know, and another place where um, the the Dells and the Spinners, remember that group? Those sure, are, yeah. That, and the Delphonics there. Mm-hmm. so. There was a gig. I still was playing. I was playing with Street Dancer.
0: Oh yeah, I remember Street Dancer. Yeah, sure.
1: yeah. This Stankowski, Stank, Stankowski. Right. Yeah, he's a good, great, great guy. I was playing, and I was playing the blues clubs. You know, I would play up on on the north side with all. Yeah, because it's uh,
0: Chicago, so you're yeah. playing the Chicago blues, blues scene. South side. Whatever,
1: yeah. I, I played with uh, Junior Wells and JB Huddle down at Checkmate <laughs> and those blues clubs on the south side. Yeah. So I was just playing everywhere, and um, but then but but then I got a gig to play in the band behind the Spinners or the Dells or, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy, his name was Donald Myrick. We called him Hipmo. He was the, uh, later he was the, the leader of the Phoenix Horns that played with Earth Wind and Fire. Oh, yeah. And he also recorded with Phil Collins, the whole, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so Donald, I went there for the first time, somebody, the, the saxophone player got six, tenor player got six, so they called me. I came in and I'm sitting next to Donald. He's there and I'm here and I had never this is new experience, so I'm there and they put the music and I gotta read, sight read everything because there was no rehearsal. Right. So, cool. And but, you know, if you ever been in those bands, you, you know how the music can look. <laughs> Donald was great. He helped me through everything. He just okay, we're going here now. Cause it, it's not as many, much enough as as, as much as it is is. Directing your eyes yeah. to where you got to go next, yeah. you know. Okay, they jump. You're here not
0: playing there. all the time, and yeah. then it jumps, and then you're here. Exactly.
1: And then, yeah. So he was really helpful. We he go here, then we go there. We did such a good job together. They started calling us together as a team. So he and I became really close, and I started playing. I, I played with Isaac Brothers, Temptations, Four Tops. I, I just we went. I just I played with everybody. Yeah. Michael Jackson, you know, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Jackson Five, and so that's how that happened. So I'm doing that now, I'm kind of going around and then there's this other band, local band, Thunderfunk, Funk Symphony, Jesus Wayne's band and I'm playing with everything this. I'm on the road, uh, opening for a different, and then I joined Earth, Wind & Fire because Maurice was still in Chicago. It was before mm-hmm. he went to California. So I'm doing all that and having the ball. Having a good a musician. time, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> having the ball, being a musician. Yeah, so then uh, in Evanston, there was a place called The Amazing Grace. It was a great place, it was like a, I guess you might could call it like a cabaret theater. Okay. It was a theater, but then it had tables also, um, and it was a combination of, of a nightclub mm-hmm. theater. And Charles Mingus came there, and I asked Charles Mingus to sit if I could sit in. I went there again. I was brave, and this this is where I learned. And Charles another, Mingus is pretty pretty intimidating, oh, he, right? Ex, ex, you have not extreme. Plus, I knew his history. Charles Mingus, if he if you messed up, the worst thing you could do to him was mess up his music. And if you did, he would stop the band, call you out in front like of like you. You're the drummer. He would say, uh, he stopped the band. And, you know, say excuse me. He says, you guys paid to hear professional people play this music. It appears our drummer didn't get the message. <laughs> oh, uh, and uh, I mean, really. And he says, so we're gonna start the song over again. Maybe he'll learn his part in that barbershop. Oh, he <laughs> oh, was, he, was, he was he was brutal. Oh, and he was known for hitting people. If he was, I if remember, he was, yeah. Uh, yeah, he punched somebody out one time. So, and yeah. I don't know why I was so brave at that time. I, <laughs> I, I went up and, uh, and I asked him, and he said, yes, it was okay with him, but I would have to ask George Adams, who was the saxophone player with him at the time. So I learned two lessons. Number one, he no matter what, he respected the musicians that were in his band. I could not have done that without George's permission. Mm-hmm. So... That's one lesson. The other lesson I learned is, because when he opened, he, 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 I thought he'd, say, he'd be nice to call the rhythm changes or, or the blues or something. He called one of his song, songs that spanned three music stands. You <laughs> 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 literally had to walk down. the oh, And I'm like, oh. So the second lesson I learned is, if you're going to go to someone and ask them, play, you know, to sit in with them, make sure you know their music. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, I did a good job. And and George, again, like Donald, was again, great guy, very yeah. helpful. He could have been terrible, but he wasn't. Afterwards, I was leaving, I, I went over to thank, because, uh, you know, he was pretty big, he had to sit down. Mm-hmm. I went to thank him for letting me sit in, I was about to leave, and he said, hey, you should come to New York. He said, we play at Boomers every Saturday, you come, and." and looked me up i was like okay so that gave me the idea that i could go to and the
0: confidence industry. probably yeah, too right i, felt I, mean, I could go, Yeah, you know
1: so that's how I, I i didn't go until later because i was i decided to work on my master's degree so i went to governor state university for my master's degree and, and warwick carter that's what i met meant mm-hmm. and during that time he we joined the note you know the monk institute and what they yeah. do with the like joshua redmond sure yeah there's, yeah there's
0: been some people from chicago that are part of that
1: i was a part of the uh, I went to that um, school, and we were in the Inter- Notre Dame Intercollegiate Jazz Festival, which did the same exact thing, and Come we competed. On. And the school, we won five awards, I won two. I won the best saxophone and the best <laughs> soloist, and we, we won the best arranger, Vandy Harris, and, and a singer, I think, and, and the, uh, uh, something else. We won five. Yeah. And as a result of that, we got the opportunity to go to Brazil in an exchange with the governor of Illinois and the governor of, of Sao Paulo or in Sao Paulo. Yeah. So I went to Brazil because wow. of that. Went down there and uh, had a great time down there. I bet. And,
0: uh, and There's that, a lot of music down there. Yeah, man. and, and on the way
1: that, we man. flew from Chicago to New York and then New York to Brazil. And then from New York, uh, Brazil, uh, Sao Paulo, I should say. Mm-hmm. Sao Paulo to New York. And I decided, because back then the airlines were a lot different. They allowed you to, you could have layovers. You, you didn't have to just. Um, you oh, so you could like over yeah, for I a couple, layover, days a couple of days? Yeah, lay for a couple of days, yeah. They allowed that. I said, okay, I don't wanna just make a, a, a you know, um, change. So I, I decided because Fred Hopkins, Henry Threadgill, they had gone to New York. So I decided I would stay. So I called up Fred at the airport.
0: So you're at the airport.
1: I'm at the airport. And I thought, why? Why not just visit, see how New York is like? And I, it's at Fred. I said, Fred, can I stay with you a couple of a couple of days? He he said, Yeah. So uh, I come in, I fly in, and I decide to go. I tell the airlines I'm gonna be here for. Mm -hmm. You know, I go, and Fred's living in this loft with David Murray, Stanley Crouch, and uh, Philip Wilson. (laughs) So, and now me, (laughs) and I figured I was gonna stay there for three days. Yeah. That was, you know after the first day i go down there and, and henry says she go listen i gotta go to chicago no uh no sorry yeah henry says i gotta go to chicago. and there was the 10 palace downstairs he says listen can you suffer me with gene lee i said okay sure so my three days turned into because i had to stay the weekend because she was playing the weekend and then she did so well the 10 palace asked her to come back so my week turned into two weeks so you so you there, yeah. Henry, so then he comes back. And then I meet Oludara while I'm there. And uh, Olu's is taking me around, cause I'm now I'm kinda like it. So he was working at a place called Dr. Gener- Generosity with Michael Carvin and, and, and Mickey Bass. Mm-hmm. So I go up there and I sit in, so I sit in with them. And Mickey says, come on, join the band. So now I'm playing, this is every weekend, you know. <laughs> so now my two weeks turn into a month more. And I'm there every weekend. And so I'm playing with that. Then I come back and I meet me Cecil McBee, and he's got a band and he's playing, so he, he asked me to come and play there, so now I'm playing with Cecil. No, John Stubblefield. Oh, John Stubblefield, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. So John was he got a gig with Nat Adderley, and he called me and says, Chico, can you sup with me with Cecil? So I do that, three months. Now I got to find some place to stay. <laughs> yeah, right, You're not staying there anymore. Yeah. It's like so I man. actually slept on a couple of park benches for a while. Did you? I was homeless for a minute. yeah, but then yeah. I uh, I got. Um, but that was back I,
0: back in the day when that yeah. when you were doing that, yeah. you were able to do that. Yeah. Me- meaning like you could go from one club, meet these guys, go to the next club, and there was enough work probably too, right? There's a lot. Well, of I, I didn't
1: know that. I had no idea I was going to be working like that. Yeah, I mean, right. I, you know, and then the next thing I know. Um, uh, I'm, Sun am Sunrock called me and I'm, so he wants me to play with him, so I go to play with Sunrock. Is he in New York then? Well, he's in Philadelphia. Oh, Philadelphia, F- F- okay, yeah, okay. And then Eddie Moore, great drummer, uh, you know Eddie, sure, uh, he played yeah, with Sonny yeah, yeah. Rollins and everything. Eddie's playing, uh, Rick Moore Newman, uh, Joe jo Newman's wife, she had a place, mm-hmm. uh, 52nd Street. She reopened, the. you know, the 52nd Street Club? Yeah. It was a famous one, but yeah. well, on 52nd Street, she opened that club again. And he was down there playing, and I went down to see him because I knew him. He was a friend of my uncle's, George. And there, and he's there, and with Calvin Hill and Roland Prince, who's playing with Elvin Jones. And I, I sit in, and Roland said, hey, you know, you should call Keiko and Elvin, he's, Elvin's looking for a saxophone player. I said, okay, here's the number, call Keiko. So I get up the next day, go to a phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dating myself. <laughs> I remember
0: phone booths. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Give Keiko a call, and she says, okay, we're playing the Vanguard so come down. Elvin's playing over. at the yeah, Vanguard, yeah. so come out so yeah. Now I'm thinking I'm going to audition, right? Sure. So yeah. I decide mm-hmm. to be a little late. Not not late, but I, I didn't think I had to be on, because she didn't say be there. She just said come down. Right. So I'm thinking I can come down, sneak in, sit in the back, listen. Yeah. Get a... She sees me walking in the club down the stairs. <gasps> she panics. You got to go, go, yeah. Like, I, I was late. I was like, oh man, I would never make this kind of impression, you know what I mean? Right. We just talked about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, she takes me, you know how the van, you've been to the van. Yeah. van? Yeah. yeah, So, you know, on the side, you go up to the side, on the mm-hmm. side, she says, take out your horn. She, take out pushes had, me on the, the stage. Already? You had a gig already? I don't <laughs> know if I had it, but she pushes me on the stage. I'm standing, and Elvin's playing, and Elvin's <laughs> And, and uh, he over, look, he looks over at me, and I'm like, oh, and he's like, eh. And so, <laughs> Pat LaBarbera, you know, Elvin liked to yeah. use two tenors, so Pat LaBarbera was playing. I have no idea what they're playing. <laughs> I don't know what key there is, nothing. So I said, Pat, what song is this? Pat wasn't nice. He no. wasn't like, oh. like, like um, Don, Myrick, but, yeah. or George. Pat turned his back on me. He turned around, looked the other direction. He, just turned, <laughs> he turned his back. I said, oh, it's like that. Welcome to New York. Yeah, right, <laughs> So yeah. Elvin, after they played, and then Elvin uh, looked at me, okay, you play. So I went in my ear and I just played. Yeah. Then he, they, I said, so, because so, I said, Pat, tell me what, what, I said, at least tell me what key we we're in. Right. He, no, said, he didn't talk to me at all. <laughs> so then uh, Elvin, they knew what the next song is. They started the next song. I said, "I'll give it one more shot." Pat, what song is this? <laughs> right. Nothing, N- nada. So I played that one again. Damn.
0: Yeah.
1: I did not think I had that gig. Mm-hmm. So after that was set was over, I pa- turned around to pack up my heart. Keiko, come. Ah, you want job? You want job? I said, "Of course." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I played the rest of the week and went on tour with her. Wow. And that's how that. That's how I joined Elvin. That's how, and I never came back to Chicago.
0: No, that was it. That was it. I'm, you still have a layover flight that you can use. I got the ticket from. So yeah. <laughs> 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 no,
1: no, the flight Well,
0: that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, so that so that really kind of that's how you kind of boom and you launched into your into I mean, the deal. And I mean, you were with so you got to play with Alvin. You also got to tour and play with McCoy. I oh, mean, yeah. all, all, all the time um, I played with McCoy for five years. Yeah, played with
1: Jack DeJohnette for five years, and then I and I worked with Max and and Billy. Well, Billy, I started my own groups and I had great great bands. I had uh, Reggie Workman was in my band Cecil McBee was in my band Buster Williams. Something. Yeah, I had um, Al Foster Ron Carter. Um, uh, you know, well, I mean, uh,
0: you've had everybody in your bands. Cause they were oh, really, oh you know.
1: and I, you know who I had in my band, which was one of the greatest guys? Uh, the drummer with Mingus, uh, Danny Richmond. Oh, yeah. <sighs> he was amazing. He was just amazing. We toured, we had like three or four week tour. In He's the only guy that didn't have an off night. Really? Ever. Amazing, I don't, his, his consistency was, was, was unhuman,
0: inhuman you know it's interesting because that that leads leads me down the road that I want to ask you about a couple of different things from composition wise and stuff because you write a lot of your own music yeah. when we were coming over here today mm-hmm. we were talking about that and talking about the original compositions but since you brought up the like the off night having an off night I think it's real important and I think it's interesting for young musicians especially but also even seasoned veterans that are playing around town doing their thing doing whatever even educators but somebody on your level it's a whole different ball game to walk in in front of a room with the Vanguard or whoever, with Elvin or with your own band or whatever, and hit it and be at this level. Like, boom, there's like intensity, everything's just gotta be popping. Because that doesn't happen a lot of times when you're not used to doing that, right? Mm-hmm. So, how did you get to, uh, what go, What went through your mind or when did you realize that like this is just the way I sound and I'm playing at this level? Because you must play with guys that you get into a room and you're playing at this level, meaning intensity wise, meaning you're throwing down, here it comes, first tune, it could be at three o'clock in the afternoon and nine o'clock at night, doesn't matter. This is this is what's happening. And guys are going through the motion and they're playing. I just think that there's a mind shift at some point in a professional musician's mind where it's like, I gotta play at this level all the time because this is me and this is where I have to be if I wanna be at this you know, part of my career. Was there, did you, is that just something that you learn or is something that just happens or? I, I think it comes more from
1: when you do it, do it over and over again yeah. and you, you have to do it. Uh, and the more you do a thing, the better you become at it. So I, there was a time I felt that there was a little bit of a letdown in, in general mm-hmm. from musicians, from the older guys. But then, and I thought I attributed it to the fact that Mingus used to, he was the house band at Slugs or, you know, and yeah. he played for a month, every night, then they would go on tour. Yeah. So they, the guys had that opportunity to do that. Uh, that's how they kept bands together. And you look at the, the groups that had, you know, the Modern Jazz Quartet, the Charles Mingus, they, you know, Coltrane, Coltrane uh, Miles, they would have bands that lasted, you know, and stayed together. Mm-hmm. And I, the only way I saw that was, the only difference I saw was the fact that they would be able to play, they would be the house band or play a place for, Three weeks, four weeks, a month, two months, you know, yeah, and then take off, and then somebody else would come in and be the house band for another month or two, and that was great. It was hard back then, uh, a lot of times, to have to, to have that, you know. I, I, in fact, I don't think that's ever come back. That's why when I used to tour, I loved to play at Ronnie Scott's in London back then, because I got two weeks, and I was one of the only few bands that he'd give a month to. Wow. And um, but uh, but though, I'd love go. I was two weeks in London with one night off each week, but. When I would tour with, like, I toured with Don Pullen, we had six or eight week tour, one night off.
0: That's it. So every yeah. night that you
1: were there. And that particular tour did with Don, Rashid Ali had a club in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, he drummer with Coltrane yep. too after Elvin, and it was called Ali's Alley. And we toured for six or six or seven weeks uh, in Europe, t- and we were like on that level, like. Just, guys but even, of I didn't think there, that probably. we could get higher, but every night it got higher and higher and higher and higher. And when we came to New York, we had, we flew in, and one day when he st- we started at Ali's Alley. And when we walked in that place, uh, I remember the last three nights, the last night we were there, um, we were playing so incredible that, and he was supposed to close. So he turned off the lights he gave, he told everybody, the outside lights, he told everyone, and said, you can leave now or not, but, but if you stay, we're gonna lock, close the door and lock the door. Everybody stayed, the place was jamming, nobody left. He closed the door locked it, made it look like he was closed. Yeah. And we played on because we could we were, we, were, we, we still <laughs> had it in us. I mean, we were <laughs> done, we had played all the sets. Hit that last set, and I saw myself leave my body. And 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 it just was, and the people were, I wish that, that my father always said that, um, those great magical moments are never recorded. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> They're never recorded. That was one of them, and oh. that was after like eight weeks of constant playing, yeah. and that last that was the last night, and it was just amazing. So I think that those guys played all the time. I think that that you. Yeah. Like, you
0: know. Well, and that's you, right? I mean, you play all the time. Well, yeah. you played all the time, and now you're playing. You're playing all the time, and that's how you get to that. That yeah. level that's probably the key right yeah. and also a mindset too though I think you know at some so point because I mean I got out. about
1: 72 games at the NBA in, you know, 75 whatever they got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot of playing, you know,
0: yeah, and they finally get to that, that, that get level. To that level. That's that, that, yeah. So also you're writing a lot of music you've written a lot of music and we were talking about this new project You're you're you're, you're starting to put together here in Chicago, which is going to be really exciting I don't know how much we can talk about that, but As far as your compositions, I'm always curious too, from a saxophone player or just a soloist. All right, so you write a tune, you compose a tune, you're the composer, arranger. Then you get into a room, you got the band, you gotta rehearse, now you have to be the sax player, the improvisationalist. Do you take yourself out of the compositional role? Because to me, that's kind of difficult. If you write the tune and everything and now, okay, now I'm gonna solo over this, now you wrote the thing. So if you don't like what's going on, you can just change stuff. Or do you, this is what I wrote, this is the way it's going down. Do you have to have like a brain shift when you're now the guy playing over your tune? Like, are you taking yourself out of the compositional role? I guess is my point. Mm. Sometimes, yes.
1: Because I have to open up, I I like to open the doors for, for the players to contribute. I never tell them what to do. Right. Because I don't want them inside my head. I don't want them in, uh, there at all. I, want, I wrote the thing and I want them to react to what it means to them or you know how it does. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 yes, I do take myself out and I leave it to them and then we play and, I, and, we, and we see what's happening. i played two, three times maybe before. I, if I have something to say, it only be if I really don't like something that they that, 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 that do, then maybe I'll speak up mm-hmm. and then I'll find out. So yeah, I usually take myself out give them the opportunity to, to find out what it means to them. And then, if they if we end up doing something differently, I never argue about what we're gonna do, never. If we have a differing opinion about how something should be done or go, then we stop and then we say, okay, let's play it. And you play it each way and give it all you have. Yeah. And and then the music will tell you what works for this group of mm. guys or these group of musicians.
0: Yeah, because to me, that would be really difficult. I mean, you've written a lot of, music over the years Mm -hmm. and uh you've played with a lot of different personnel in your groups and stuff so each tune's probably got a little bit of different you know depending on the personnel and all that stuff but as an instrumentalist who wrote the tune (laughs) it's interesting to me that you can separate from that and say okay you know you put your ego by the by the door and say all right this is what it's going to sound like with this
1: group I don't mind everybody has to have an ego just to get up on the stage you need it Mm-hmm. I just don't want any ego problems. Yeah. So I expect ego. I mean, I, I expect confidence and all that. That's great. You have an ego, but no ego problems. Right. So I, I don't miss see it because you have to have it. You need it, you know, to, to, do, to, to do this.
0: Yeah. yeah well let's talk a little bit about so you've got a project that you're working on for 2020 in Chicago I think and we're, we're talking yes. a little bit can we talk how much can we talk about that talk
1: a little bit about. tiny
0: it. bit but you you're actually just a we'll touch a little bit about that but I also want to talk about since this is coming out October 1st we can talk about what you have coming up October November you're going to Europe you're going to Switzerland you're doing yeah. a lot of different stuff here
1: yeah I'm taking this project uh, to uh, Switzerland in November okay and it's, it's called Chicago Freeman voices of Chicago and it's, uh, it's a mix of jazz and gospel together. And it's dedicated to my grandmother. Because, you know, um, my family, as you know, my dad's gotten his due, and my um, Uncle George, and, you know, people know the names, but they don't realize that their mom was a gospel singer who sang with people like uh, Mahalia Jackson and the Clara Ward Singers. So I want to give her some. So my brother, I say, she needs some ink too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. she's
0: the one that's probably started the whole yeah, thing. Right? My uncle's playing guitar because of her. Yeah.
1: So I want to make sure she gets some, you know. So in, uh, this is that de- this project's dedicated to her, and I've picked some singers here that are some of Chicago's finest mm-hmm. singers. So and it's going to be a
0: combination: jazz, blues, the, gospel, everything guy, put yes, together. Put
1: together. All that.
0: Almost, it almost reminds me of like the, you know, with you. I mean, you play all these different genres, so it's almost like you're also p- paying a little homage to how you came up, too, right? All these little influences from I grew Chicago. With my
1: grandmama, and she's, she introduced me to gospel music. I mean, she was church and everything. I, I listened to her sing and play gospel, you know, sing gospel. My, her husband, my grandfather, uh, was a piano player and one of the first black policemen on the Chicago police force. So oh, really? That, his best friend was Louis Armstrong. My dad and my uncles grew up listening to. Their father,
0: my grandfather, played duets with Louis Armstrong. Really? Their piano and no, trumpet. So, yeah. Is that it, still the same piano, by the way, that's in your uncle's house? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay, because he's got some piano. That, that's an that, old-fashioned that, that, piano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was like, whoa. You've
1: been there. <laughs> oh, I've been there, man. I've been there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that you're taking this project down the road in November. Is that, that yeah, kind it's of gonna, the plan? It's, gonna, it's, it's uh, debuting
1: in, in Switzerland and in Germany in November.
0: Okay, and then you were t- talking a little bit off camera. So you're doing stuff in, in Switzerland and then you're also t- touring a little
1: bit, right? are yeah, well, you doing some other once things? I, I plan to showcase uh, next uh, week. Yep. Uh, well, actually before that I go to Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. And I just came from Syracuse and uh, Auburn and then I'll do the showcase next week. And then after the showcase I go uh, back to Europe and I go to Germany and Austria with some projects. This project
0: I was telling you about, mm-hmm. Exotica,
1: which uh, which is a trio I have
0: with uh, this this project sounds really interesting. Talk a little bit about this because it's, it it sounds real interesting, and I think this is something that we need to talk about getting to Chicago at some well, point. Well,
1: this, this 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 project is called Exotica. Chico Freeman's Exotica. Chico Freeman Exotica, and um, what makes what the first thing that makes it interesting is the per- percussionist who's playing with me. Uh, he's um, he's a Swiss guy, and uh, he plays a particular instrument, it's called hang. It's spelled hang, like in English, you know, just mm-hmm. hang. But it's, in Swiss German, it's pronounced hang. Oh. And it means playing with, your, it means hand. And it's just played with your hands. And it's like um, two woks.
0: Oh yeah, okay, You know well, the pots. Concave, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: and put together like that. And, and there are indentations in, and they make, and they're pitched. And I know exactly
0: what you're talking about. Yeah. I've seen and then
1: that on the instrument. top yeah. is a low you know, yeah. You know. mm-hmm. And he invented this instrument. This is the guy oh, who- he did? Yeah, that's oh, what I'm wow. saying. His name is Reto Weber. He's the inventor. He came up with the idea and he uh, found a guy to, who could make it. You know, he, mm-hmm. he didn't make it himself. He didn't put it together, but he invented it. And he did that. And uh, so then he got it. So he was the first person to play it. He's got three or, three or four of them now. And, and he does that. And now, they, they've, got, they've got a whole bunch of people playing it around, and they even have a convention that they started to do, and they, he goes to these places. Yeah. But anyway, he plays it. So, this instrument has a unique sound. And I like, it's a very mellow, beautiful sound, unique. And so this Exotica, is a, it's, it's, it started out as a trio with the, the Hong, and, but he also plays African water drums, and he plays djembe, uh, so mm-hmm. he's a percussionist. And I have a cellist, and this cellist, his name is Svante Henderson. He's an incredible cellist, an incredible musician. He's a Swedish guy, bad man. And we have this thing. But then I also sometimes use a bassist. His name is Harry Kanzik. And so, and then sometimes I use them both. Wow. Cello and bass. So, exotica with that. And then I'm playing uh, with saxophones and mm-hmm. uh, bass clarinet and, uh, you know, all of that. And, I've written music for this particular thing, and we've had some beautiful music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can find us on, the, you can find this band on, on YouTube,
0: and I have a YouTube channel, and you'll see it. And it's ChicoFreeman.com, right? Is it the website? That's my website. Your we so website, so it's probably linked over on there, on there, there on too. There.
1: But YouTube, yeah, you have a link to YouTube, too, and uh, you can hear a couple songs yeah. on there, but uh, yeah. So this, tour, this band is touring in October. Wow. And so I go back to do that in October. Then November, I bring over the voices and we're doing, we have a tour of uh, Switzerland and uh, Germany. Wow. And they're working on a tour for next year, for 2020. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping to bring it here to the States and partic- in particular, here to Chicago.
0: It's gotta come to Chicago. Yeah, it's Chicago, I mean, it's it Chicago. It has to come Wisconsin. to Chicago. Yeah. yeah. So
1: that's that's, that's wow. what that is.
0: Well, I'm so glad that we got to sit yeah, down Mike and talk cool. a little bit, man. <laughs> this was unbelievable chico freeman of course ChicoFreeman.com, of course uh, keep up to date on everything that's happening we're going to link also everything my up my facebook, page facebook? Uh,
1: yeah so no uh, you can find a lot of information on me at face on facebook and of course on my website
0: well we'll, we'll link everything up but yeah. thanks so much man Thank i you, really appreciate it <laughs> okay. and of course you can get see all the uh, videos and all the other interviews on chicago jazz magazine.com ChicagoJazz.com, but I'm so glad we got to sit down with you. You got the Selmer sitting yes. right in front of us yeah, here. Yeah, I'm
1: a Selmer and Dorsey saxophone. Been playing it for many, many, many years.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. and this is a hip-looking Selmer too, it by the way. good. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for watching. We appreciate you uh, being here for the feature interview, October 2019. And until next time, we will see you somewhere out on the scene.